I'm a cancer thriver. I don't use the word survivor because it still brings in connotations of death. And I believe in visualizing oneself as being healed and healing. Welcome to Wellness, your ultimate guide to unlocking your full human potential through biohacking. I'm your host, Ashley Daly. I'm a former personal trainer, Pilates instructor, and nutrition expert with a degree in kinesiology. I'm here to guide and support you in elevating the quality of your life. Can I ask you a favor? When you leave a review for me, it helps listeners like yourself find and access this information faster. So if you have five minutes, I would love if you could log on to Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast and leave me a review. Today's guest is Dr. Katrina Lewis. She's a former medical director of the Optimal Pain Solutions Alliance. She recently retired after 35 years as a physician. She's originally from South Africa and went to medical school at age 16. She has training and experience in emergency medicine and surgery in South Africa. She also has a degree in clinical nutrition from American Academy of Nutrition. She's also double board certified in anesthesiology and interventional pain medicine. She's ABA board certified in anesthesiology. She has her bachelor in immunology and physiological chemistry. She completed her fellowship at Tufts MA and ABA board certified in pain medicine. She's board certified through the American Academy of Anti-Aging and Regenerative Medicine in functional medicine. She has experience as a cruise ship doctor and she's also a national speaker and lecturer. Lastly, she is a published author, and I'm very grateful to have her on the show today. For a brief reminder, this show does not replace medical advice, and we do get into some controversial topics. So if you think you might be offended by the topics of chemotherapy, mammograms, and big pharma, you are not encouraged to listen to this episode. All right, let's get into it. Dr. Lewis, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here, Ashley. Me too. I know we went back and forth and we had a wonderful friend introduce us. I've given my listeners a bit of your background, but I would love to hear your story and the catalyst that caused you to become a pain management expert. Oh, goodness. <laughs> like most stories, I think it's many detours and many interesting things along the way. But my mom was a doctor, so she inspired me. And I went into medicine in South Africa originally. Went to medical school when I just turned 16, which was pretty daunting. Probably should have taken a bridge here. <laughs> but anyway. I managed to get through it and did, obviously got my degree halfway through my medical degree. It was offered to certain of the students in the class if they wanted to take a year off to do kind of a research degree. And then with the first two years or three years of your medical school training, counting towards like what would be two or three years of a BSc, a Bachelor of Science. So I did that, but then you only do the one year and then you come out after one year with a full Bachelor of Science, and mine was in immunology and physiological chemistry. And my PhD project was in making uh, a monoclonal antibody and all that good stuff. That was fascinating. It made me a lifelong 
lover of immunology and our body's just absolutely incredible healing systems of which the immune system is probably first and foremost, I would say after gut microbiome. Well, they were all interrelated, of course. So then I wanted to be in on the action, did a lot of emergency medicine. I worked off a year or so on my scholarship, which had paid for most, much of my medical school. So I did a variety of things working for the Cape Town City Council. And then, as I say, went into some emergency medicine work, decided I was fascinated with surgery. I actually wanted to be a plastic surgeon and ended up doing part of a surgical residency. And then a number of things happened at that time. It was to do with the country. It was to, to do with family stuff. Due to me thinking about a lot of things, and the surgical career is a tough one, just like it is here many years. And I suddenly had this moment of epiphany where I thought, you know, you went to med school too early. You've done nothing. You haven't really had a teenage life. Why don't you just take a breather and see if you're really making good choices for yourself? So I had a British, full British citizenship through my parents, and I decided <clears throat> to go over to England for a year, do some locum work, see a bit of the world, explore myself as well. And through that particular job, I was working in different places in England, got offered through my agency to go and work on the cruise ships. And I'd always thought that would be super fun. So I landed up doing that for quite a long time because the line I was working for, Princess Cruises and P&O Cruises with their British arm, were actually state of the art. They're probably the best medical centers in the world for cruise ships. They full ICU centers and x-rays. We could give clock-busting drugs. We could run all the labs. You know, we could set fractures. We could do anything. So, you know, it, it was actually basically like being in a very high-end advanced urgent care, come emergency, but come hospital, come everything, because you can't always just get rid of patients on certain itineraries. So I did that for a long time, but during that period, got my degree in clinical nutrition because it was during that time that I started becoming very interested in the whole body approach to medicine. And so I was also studying for the exams in order to get me into the US because I'd met my husband at that time and he was American. So I, did, I was pretty busy even though I was, well, the cruise ship work got busy and busier as those cruise ships became these absolute monoliths. And so, yeah, I got my degree with the American Academy of Clinical Nutrition then got my, my American exams done and entered into a residency in anesthesiology. I had thought about emergency medicine, but that was something for young people. And I'd realized very quickly doing it in South Africa, how rapidly I'd got burnt out and the high stress. And I thought that I wanted something more for my life. I'd started becoming interested in pain medicine and I knew that interventional pain medicine was a subspecialty of anesthesiology. And so I went and got my anesthesiology residency, then got awarded a fellowship at Tufts to go and do my year fellowship in interventional pain medicine, then became board certified in pain medicine. And kind of the rest is history from there. The pain medicine field, the reason I chose it was because I wanted to make a difference in medicine where you're not just keeping people 
alive or fighting people, telling them don't smoke, you know, don't eat so much sugar, don't do this. I wanted, and, and, and yet you can't always change that. And I certainly was always against a lot of pharmaceuticals. I wanted something that would meld all of my interests, which included things like environmental medicine and toxins in the environment. I'm a big Rachel Carson fan. You know, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has done amazing work in that field, defending us, we the people, from corporations in every regard. That was very important to me because I love the planet and I love animals. I wanted to make a difference to people's quality of life. I wanted to stick needles in people. I like that. <laughs> so the pain medicine let me do that. But I also, the chronic pain, and we'll get into that, I think, in this discussion, the chronic pain field to really address chronic pain adequately. And it's actually like most diseases, but I think particularly when you get into the specific fields of cancer and chronic pain, it's multivariate, extremely complex, and this very seldom is a magic bullet. You know, it, it takes many things. It takes individualized approaches. It takes approaches from the bioenergy medicine world, from nutrition, from physical medicine, like whether you're talking Pilates, acupuncture, physical therapy, chiropractic, looking at things like vitamin D levels, looking at just basic whole body nutrition. What is your exercise program? Are people over-exercising, under-exercising, just breath work alone? People just don't breathe deeply enough. People don't drink enough water, right? So I just thought, gosh, I want to have fun in medicine. I want to be a great doctor, but I want to have fun. And I want to really make a difference. And so kind of after going through all the different specialties, that was kind of what I came up with because I thought, you know, I could go into plastic surgery, but a lot of it is not necessarily quality of life. I mean, we all want to look beautiful, but is that the sort of way I want to spend my life doing those things? Maybe I want to make a little bit deeper impact. You know, I, and it's not to not plastic surgery. I'm all for it. <laughs> you know, I've seen a lot of women who are just so happy and it does make a huge difference. And I think plastic surgeons are some of the best doctors and surgeons in the world, there's no doubt. But as I say, just for me on a personal level, as a healer and a true physician, not just a pill pusher or a needle jockey, whatever, you know, epithet you want to assign, I wanted something that could kind of encompass everything I was interested in. I love your story. I love how well-rounded it is that you wanted to go out there and explore because 16 is quite a young age <laughs> to start medical school. No, you don't know anything. You think you know everything, but you don't know anything. So when patients would come to see you, what kind of lifestyle questions would you ask a first-time patient and why is that important? The things that are very common in the pain field are obviously asking about injuries in the past, motor vehicle accidents, other major trauma. And especially when you're talking about spine pain, it's huge. You always want to say, well, what is a precipitating event? And again, it comes down to listening to your patient and looking at, at 
factors in the patient's background. Have they, for instance, been veterans that have been exposed to those chemical tar pits or had multiple vaccinations or things like the anthrax vaccine, which they had to withdraw, which actually injured a lot of veterans. It caused Gulf War syndrome, and the military eventually admitted that and caused a lot of the neuropathy and everything else. You want to ask, obviously, about smoking. Nicotine will increase pain sensitivity. There's multiple papers on that, and it has to do with the fact that nicotine is probably the most potent poison on the planet. You could just put a few drops in a water system and kill an entire town, but also it interacts with many drugs and probably with supplements too. And so, and because of the ischemic effect, you know, when you inhale, you get this vasoconstriction. So that's where the nerve damage comes. So you're almost hypersensitizing your nerves because you are impairing the blood flow. And as we know, blood flow is one of the most important things in terms of how your body functions and keeps itself healthy. And then obviously you want to look at what type of work a patient does. You know, are they heavy construction work or are they someone who sits for a long time? And it depends on obviously what the presenting pain problem is. You're going to say, look at whether this is a patient who, who very seldom sunbathes, for instance, very pale, they've never had a vitamin D. Vitamin D is so crucial for your immune system, for overall health, for muscle pain. Soil in this country is very low magnesium. Many people have magnesium deficiency and very common cause of leg cramps, as well as just lack of stamina. Those are just a few examples of what I would always ask. And then other things I would always look at, I would actually make them fill out a form, is looking at how much anxiety and depression does a pain patient have presenting to me? Or do they have PTSD? And then one of the final pieces is you have to be open with your patient and ask about addiction problems. Because that, if you are forced to use medications, and I've always been what's called an opioid moderate, all the hysteria of the last decade or so is mostly about people who've never treated a patient. Yes, obviously, massive doses were terrible and bad. And again, that was big pharma convincing people that you could use the same doses in a normal person as a pain, as a cancer patient. And it's two completely different problems. And there's some people, there is no alternative. And you have some little old lady with just arthritic pain on half a coda and a one coda in a day. And the difference in her function and quality of life is night and day. And you have people trying to take that away. And it's wrong. Medication management aspect of pain medicine, even with all the tremendous advances and all the incredible procedures we can do nowadays and all the different injections, patients often have no idea. Most referring doctors have no idea what's in our toolkit. But even with all of that, sometimes medications are a necessary evil and that management can be one of the hardest things. I liked what you said about what's in your toolkit. There's a few things I want to touch on there. So I didn't realize nicotine can make pain worse. So you're saying if someone is in pain, they should not be self-medicating with cigarettes. 
Oh, absolutely not. Now, remember, most of the self-medication with cigarettes is not for pain, it's for anxiety. Smoking is an anxiolytic. That, that's why it, it's one of the addictions, right? And it's why people who have tremendous anxiety, PTSD, and severe emotional trauma, everybody has emotional trauma. And Gabo Mate speaks to this very well, but every addictionologist on the planet can tell you that depression and anxiety make people seek ways either to distract themselves or to ease the pain, the psychosomatic, the mental pain. And whether it's gambling, sex addiction, alcohol, drugs, you know, that they're going to look for something. So so nicotine's just one of the things in their toolkit, but it is an addiction. And obviously there's again, people genetically have more nicotine receptors than others. That's why some people can just stop cold turkey with no problem. And other people, it's almost impossible. They're on the oxygen tank and they're still trying to puff in between, even though they know how bad it is. So, And you've got to feel sad for those people. And there are actually natural ways to come off nicotine. I've seen acupuncture work very well too. But there's also, again, the nicotine depletes. Most drugs, people don't realize, most drugs deplete a lot of vitamins in your body and cause nutrition. I'm talking biopharmaceuticals. And certainly with the nicotine, any approach that you have to try to get off cigarettes, you need to find a way to help the patient deal with anxiety. Give them something in their hand to do or a way to calm them down because they're not calm. So that's one aspect. But like I said, that you'll see, and I've seen it in my pain practice, the smokers are often the ones presenting with the worst pain and they're very difficult to treat and it's often all over. And a lot has to do with also the fact that every time you inhale and you get the vasoconstriction, you're impairing blood supply everywhere in your body, but especially the spine. And things like your spinal discs, for instance, don't have a very good blood supply to start off with. Same as cartilage and those kind of things. So if you've only got very small blood vessels and now you're getting vasoconstriction, that's why smokers' spines tend to deteriorate more rapidly. It's why neurosurgeons will not do a spine fusion on patients until they stop smoking and they will actually run blood tests to make sure they've stopped smoking. Yeah, mo most good neurosurgeons will refuse to do a fusion on a spine patient until they've stopped smoking because they know the fusion won't take. Wow, I didn't know so, that. I do want to briefly mention because I think, again, it's been so misunderstood and I don't think what I'm saying is controversial, but again, the wrong players are in the field. Governments and states have pushed the, the marijuana thing, the THC, because it makes them money and they can tax them. And obviously, there's drug cartels involved because they often lace marijuana with all sorts of other things. It's, it really is a gateway drug. Now, the Europeans have allowed it for decades and made it legal. So they were able to do proper studies. And if you look at the proper literature, and there is masses of it if you do the search in Europe, marijuana actually does almost nothing for pain. And it does nothing. It actually exacerbates anxiety and paranoia. And the reason being you get a rebound withdrawal effect, just like you get with if you take too many benzodiazepines, drugs like Xanax, Valium, Ativan, Clonopin. 
people become addicted much more easily to those drugs than to actually to narcotics because every time you try and come off them if you're taking them a lot, you get this rebound anxiety effect. It's like some of the blood pressure pills. If you try and stop suddenly, you'll get a rebound blood pressure rise. So it's a very similar principle. And I know this because I've had a lot of wonderful patients who are dealing with the simultaneous challenges of addiction and chronic pain and PTSD and anxiety disorders. And the one thing a lot of them, they will shoot, snort, inject almost anything. They, they won't do marijuana because they notice it dramatically increases the anxiety. But marijuana, mono in and of itself, the pure THC, the newest stuff, is so potent, uh, has incredible psychogenic effects, affects your mentation, stops you thinking clearly, which you don't want in almost all situations, and can be quite carcinogenic depending how they grow, the marijuana, even if it's organic. And the only time where it may be somewhat helpful is when you've got growers who are growing a higher cannabinoid product, right? So I'm a big fan of CBD. Your body has endocannabinoid receptors. CBD, you know, when you use a broad spectrum, it's pure CBD with 0.3% or less THC. And there's probably always going to be a teeny bit of THC. That's fine. That won't show up on a urine test. But there's something like 11 different endocannabinoid molecules and in combination with the terpene. And that's why you always want the broad spectrum because they act synergistically. It's amazing for anxiety and for pain. Unfortunately, you have to use, especially for pain, higher doses, and it's very extensive to get the good stuff. But there's a lot of good good companies that do grow organic, you know, cold-pressed, this, that, you know, very high-quality, rigorous testing. And I've had a lot of success for some patients, especially on superficial areas. You know, the oils can be amazing. Taking it internally can be amazing, certainly good evidence base also for cancer, but it's not the be all and end all. There's so many other options now, pain management. You know, if somebody says, I have a high CBD product that I use and I help, and it helps with my pain. Absolutely. Then use that. Keep things simple. I'm a big fan of the KISS principle. Keep it simple, <laughs> stupid. You know, people overthink and there is so much data out there it's just horrifying and obviously when you have got a severe pain problem you'll do anything it's almost like cancer you just want to throw the kitchen sink at it but i always say when you're trying a modality try it by itself before you start throwing in so many other things because otherwise it becomes confusing and you may be spending a lot of money you don't need to spend well, I'm glad you brought that up. I had a founder on my show who created her own CBD company for part of the reason as her mother was in really extreme pain. So I'll tell my listeners which episode it is. But earlier you had mentioned that blood flow is one of the most important components when it comes to pain management. And one of the reasons I wanted to have you on was I had done quite a bit of research on you and nerve blocks. So for listeners who don't know, can you walk us through some of the techniques you used to use when you were practicing pain management and what nerve blocks are? Absolutely. What you have to remember is that nerve blocks, the term, it's something that almost every 
decent interventional pain doctor does. And people get confused because they think every injection we do, they'll use the term, it's a nerve block, right? An epidural is kind of a block, but it's not really what you would call a nerve block. So we use nerve blocks in different ways. So a true nerve block is often used diagnostically. So for instance, in the spine, you believe most of the patient's pain is coming from, let's say, sacroiliac joints or from the facet joints in the back. There is a block that you will do under either X-ray or ultrasound. And what a nerve block mostly involves is injecting a local anesthetic around a nerve or group of nerves. And sometimes steroid is added. But what you're trying to do is get information primarily, diagnostic information, based on the patient's response to the nerve block. So if I do, if I have a nerve, so for instance, a peripheral nerve, like a peroneal nerve, or I think there's a neuroma, in, in, or I can see the neuroma under ultrasound, or someone's had surgery, I think there's nerve entrapment, or even just things like CRPS, complex regional pain syndrome, RSD, which can be a pretty horrifying, painful syndrome. You can have it in your upper extremity or lower extremities. You do what are called sympathetic blocks. Again, that is a type of block <laughs> that is a nerve block, but you're actually blocking an entire sympathetic chain as opposed to a single peripheral nerve. And so, you know, you can do intercostal nerve blocks where you're blocking a particular nerve that supplies a particular area on the chest wall. And I've done that very frequently for people who've had post-hepatic neuralgia shingles. They can land up with horrendous pain that always follows a dermatome distribution. So you can do a block of those intercostal nerves with local anesthetic see if the patient gets total resolution of their pain and then you can go back in and you can either do cryotherapy or a type of radio frequency and the same in the spine with the set joints in the back are typically supplied by little groups clusters of sensory nerves called medial branches they also supply one of the thin muscles that lie close to the spine but mostly they are sensory supply to just the joints in the neck thoracic spine and lumbar spine so and they lie in a particular area on the spine so if you literally just put a drop and when I say a drop I'm talking about in the lumbar spine a half a cc and in the neck I would typically use 0.2 cc's of any local anesthetic and if the patient gets somewhere between 70 80 to 100 percent pain relief whether it be of their headache their neck pain their back pain that's a positive test. And then you go in and say, okay, so if I go in now and do a radio frequency, which usually involves heating nerves, that is very likely to give the patient some long-term pain relief, anywhere from six months to two years, depending on what machine you're using, how well you do it, you know, a number of factors like that. I think this is so fascinating and I have a few follow-up questions. So how do you know where the needle goes and are you just using a syringe and what's in the syringe? Most times in the syringe is local anesthetic, sometimes mixed with a steroid if you're wanting to do what's called a diagnostic therapeutic block because sometimes 
certain nerves depending on what's caused the problem. You want to know, one, where your needle is going, and two, you know, you're not injuring the nerve. You don't want to start injecting when your needle's sitting right in the nerve. You're going to damage it. You want to put the medicine around the nerve. So that's where x-ray guidance is helpful, especially for most of the spine injections. But when you're dealing with peripheral nerves and those kind of things or intercostal nerve blocks where you're close to the lung, ultrasound really is the gold standard because you can see everything. You can watch your needle as it approaches. You can find the exact structure you need. But obviously, ultrasound takes a lot of training and technical skills. Not everybody does it. But mostly, if patients are looking for an interventional pain specialist, they want to look for someone who is comfortable with ultrasound as well as x-ray guided because that is a much more comprehensive pain management physician. I think... And more knowledgeable and better trained and we'll have more options patient. I really like that advice. So make sure that they're trained in using an ultrasound, trained in using an ultrasound x-ray. What else, what other kind of advice would you give to someone looking for a pain management expert such as the one you used to be or the one you still are but no longer practice? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would make sure other good things I would you know, it depends on what you're looking for. If you're looking for very standard things that, that all most decent pain management specialists, interventional specialists should offer is they should be very comfortable with things like spinal cord stimulators, epidurals, nerve blocks, radio frequencies, sympathetic blocks, things of that ilk. But if you're looking for someone who is more well-rounded and you have a complex pain problem, or maybe even multiple pain problems, you want to look for kind of a multidisciplinary pain practice where they have, or at least they may not have it in-house, but they have trained psychotherapists who can work with you on some cognitive behavioral coping techniques. You, you want to have access to either good chiropractic or physical therapy and and there's a place for each of those. They're not the be all and end all. It, de it depends, again, what you're treating. But you want a doctor or a pain clinic that is not just about injections, same as you don't want one that is just about medications. And then the other thing I would say to look for, especially probably your clientele, but even for older patients, is look for someone who offers some kind of regenerative medicine. And by that, and by that I'm not talking stem cell. Because that's a bit of a wild west. And to do that really well, and there's different techniques, that takes a lot. And I would be careful about people who claim they're just going to inject stem cells and fix everything. But I'm talking about things like platelet-enriched plasma therapy, otherwise known as PRP. I mean, that is actually mainstream. All the top academic centers do it, as well as the best pain clinics. And if you have a musculoskeletal problem, especially if you are very active, you want to be avoiding surgeries and medications and things. You want something that will heal you faster and work with your body's natural healing modalities. I used to always combine my PRP with ozone, with it, you know, with I was treating shoulder rotator cuff tears or knee injuries, uh, knee arthritis, hip, hip labral tears. Love ozone. It also improves ear healing. 
keeps bacteria out, does a lot of good things. And then there's some people who do things called prolazone, where they're doing prolotherapy, which you can use to strengthen ligaments. And they will often sometimes combine that with ozone. I mean, it's just fascinating what's out there, you know, pelvic pain or certain headache syndromes. Headache syndromes can sometimes be very simple to treat. But again, they can also obviously be very complex. And the same pelvic pain generally is very complex, unless you're talking about, say, someone who's had a coccygeal fracture. There's an injection you can call, do called a ganglion impar block, which is, that's a little nerve complex. It sits on the inner part of your sacrum where that sacrococcygeal ligament is. And just by blocking that with some local anesthetic and a bit of steroid, you can get months and months of relief. And it's huge for people who can't sit down on their coccyx. So, but there's other, obviously, there's other pelvic pain syndromes like the endometriosis where, you know, there, there's a number of different injections. There's also some medications that have helped patients not. And you really want someone who's comfortable with that. A lot of pain clinics won't even touch those patients because they're too complex. You bring up so many good points. And one of the stories that I thought of while you were speaking was, I have a friend who's 28 and she's an Olympic lifter and she's torn her shoulder. She doesn't have the same mobility that she used to have. And she said, I think I'm going to get surgery later this year. I, I just think well, I'm ready. No. And that was the first thing I said. I said, don't. I, you're so young. Once they cut, they can't uncut. So for someone who doesn't know what PRP is, I know you said platelet-rich plasma. What does treatment look like? It's actually very easy. And the price, depending where you are, is anywhere from, it's usually cash pay, but there are some insurances paying for it. And even Medicare and sometimes Medicaid will pay for it. But price range cash, you're looking somewhere between 700 to $2,000. It depends how many joints you're injecting. Again, there's no specific protocol. Say you've just got a very minor rotator cuff tear as an example, or minor shoulder arthritis. You go to the clinic, obviously under sterile conditions, they take usually about 50 cc's blood. of your blood and it gets spun down in the centrifuge to get the platelet layer. The platelets have growth factors and they take that platelet layer as a concentrate and then inject it into, uh, usually under ultrasound is the best way to get the best results so you can see the injured area and you make sure all the concentrate is in that area. And you, with, with the guidance, you inject it in there. It takes a couple of weeks. Sometimes it's very quick. Sometimes it's less than a week. And you will start to see differences. And the healing, it's, it's like a super accelerant of your body's natural healing. So the growth factors that are released by the platelets attract your own body's stem cells and other healing enzymes and transmitters that help things to heal and heal stronger. Because the problem with doing surgeries in torn rotator cuffs, for example, is you're already dealing with a damaged tissue. And now you're suturing a damaged tissue, but you haven't done anything to strengthen it. So the chances of you ripping it again are very high. And that's actually why a lot of the best orthopedic surgeons now will actually inject PRP after they do your surgery, whether it's on the hip or the knee or in the shoulder, to hyper-accelerate the healing and make it stronger. It depends on how bad the problem is. You know, if you're bone-on-bone bone arthritis, 
putting PRP in there or stem cell or anything else, probably not going to do a darn thing. <laughs> but if you're mild to moderate arthritis, I would do that before anything. But depending again on the severity, what structures are involved, you shouldn't need more than between two to four. And as I say, for more acute injuries, like you're in the gym and you do something stupid and you tear something, you tear a muscle, um, depending on how bad the tear is, of course, you know, one injection of PRP in there can be dramatic. And it's the same with Achilles tendinopathy and tear of the Achilles tendon. I would go and do PRP before I would start doing surgeries because surgeries have way more complications than something like this. And PRP has an incredible evidence base. You've seen some of these major sports, NFL and basketball. Those guys are back and back playing and, you know, under those high stress conditions. And they're not re-tearing typically. Whereas if they'd had surgery, they're always going to be weak in that area. I'm glad you brought that up. Now I feel like I want to tell my husband to do it because he's battling a hamstring tear. So... Maybe we'll do some PRP. Absolutely. You mentioned radio frequency earlier, and I was doing some research on, I don't know if if it's a product or a procedure called Cool Leaf, but have you heard of this? I was one of the first people to start using Cool Leaf. I absolutely love Cool Leaf. The reason being, Cool Leaf is like conventional radio frequency, where you heat a tissue to 80 degrees Celsius. Basically, they call it burning of the nerves or ablation of the nerves, or the other word is rhizotomy. Typically used for spine pain, also used for sacroiliac pain. So with conventional radio frequency, you have to put the needle in a certain way, and it kind of creates a heat field around the length of the tip of the needle, you know, like a one centimeter or half a centimeter length of the needle. What cool leaf is, it's not actually involving cooling. <laughs> what it is, though, it cools the entire needle. So all the heat comes out of the tip of the needle. And because it's much more intense that way, you only need to heat to 60 degrees Celsius, but you get a way, way bigger burn field. So when you're treating, especially in the lumbar spines and the sacroiliac spine, those clusters of nerves that I told you about that supply certain joints and ligaments, the reason a lot of radio, conventional radio frequency, whether for neck or thoracic or lumbar, wear off pretty quickly is because they don't catch all the nerves and the nerve, the le- what they call the lesion size is smaller. And so the nerves regenerate pretty quickly. And so you're having to go back every six months. Usually when I would use Cool Leaf, for instance, to treat neck facet pain, I would get somewhere between 18 months to two years for my patients. And in the lumbar spine, usually a year and a half for lumbar spine for set pain. The beauty of Cool Leaf as well is that because of the way the needle, the technology and all the heat coming out the tip of the needle, you don't have to put the needle at this weird angle so that you get all of the lesion burn around the, the end part of the needle. They, they use it very successfully, and I've used it very successfully, for knee pain. So you can have a bone-on-bone knee, but maybe you're wanting to do some intensive physical therapy before you go for your knee replacement. Or vice versa, you have your knee replacement, 
which is one of the most conventional uses for cool leaf. And you're still in pain. And so there's genicular nerves. So you would do a diagnostic block mm -hmm. on those genicular nerves that are superficial and see if the patient gets pain relief. And depending on the level of pain relief, you know that doing cool leaf for the knee pain will be very helpful. Same as you can do it for hip pain. And again, it can be even it can be even after you've had the replacement because you're not going into the joint. You're in a different area. It's been and, and it's wonderful for certain runners who get certain kind of hip syndromes where you heat up those um, sensory nerves and now they don't have that pain. And also for shoulder pain, especially post-surgical and post-shoulder replacement shoulder pain because there's a lot of those patients and those pain syndromes can be very severe. And for those patients, there often are zero other options other than narcotics. Wow. So I'm a big fan of cool leaf. If patients, again, find the pain practice, but a lot of private pain practices will do all their procedures in what's called an ambulatory surgery center, and then they will often offer the cool leaf. The cool leaf's amazing. If you can find a pain practice that has that, you'll get much better and longer lasting results. Sometimes when people hear this information, it can be awe-inspiring. They'll drop their jaws saying, I never heard of that. I didn't know that was possible. So if someone is trying to manage their pain and they're on a bit of a budget, earlier you mentioned breathing and that blood flow is really important. What are a few other modalities that are easily accessible to manage pain? Oh, gosh. It's such a huge, vast topic. It's like talking about cancer. You can't just lump it all in one, right? I first of all would say to the patient, if you've got a pain problem, and you don't know exactly what's causing it, don't be fiddling around taking this, that, and the other. Try and figure out, first of all, what is causing your pain? Let's say you do know what it is. You ripped something in the gym or, you know, you're diabetic and you've got neuropathy. I would say to that patient, you need to start looking at drug interactions of medicines you're on. You need to ask your primary care for a vitamin D level. If you've got neuropathy, you want to look at your B12 levels. If you have a job where you feel you may have been exposed to heavy metals or pesticides or other toxins, you definitely want to find out about those and clear them. You want to look at stress in your life and you want to look at the fact that do you need to go and see a counselor or find a counselor or do you need to do something just to improve circulation. I'm a big fan of yoga and Pilates, but for some people, especially with spine pain, yoga is just incredible because it addresses both the physical and the mental. But Pilates, if you find a very highly trained Pilates instructor and you do a one-on-one -on -one session, they do things that a, a physical therapist or chiropractor may not look at. I used to have a Pilates instructor that I would send people to, especially with spine pain, referred pain, which people don't recognize. How much pain going down the leg has nothing to do with true sciatica. Muscles in your back can refer pain down your leg, so can hip pain, so can your sacroiliac joint. That's almost like a whole ecosystem of its own. 
And it's the driver that the problem is. And I see that in the neck. People will come and go, oh, I've got this terrible thoracic spine pain. All of those are associated with headache syndrome. You may or may not have a bit of neck pain, but it's your headache that is the primary complaint of those patients. And then, you know, for sacroiliac stuff, if someone has this chronic pain, which sacroiliac pain, and I'm not talking sacroiliitis, which is an inflammation typically associated with autoimmune diseases. So people with lupus and rheumatoid arthritis will often get these sudden acute flare-ups of tremendous pain in their sacroiliac joint. You do one X-ray ultrasound guided steroid injection into that joint, and they usually will get 100% relief of pain. I'm talking about sacroiliac dysfunction, which is where the typical cause is a slip and fall on ice or people shoveling snow and twisting at the same time, falling off the back of a truck, loading something in a funny way, or motor vehicle accidents, both one. So what happens is you get tearing of the very intricate ligament structure, and, and it's a huge joint. And that can cause pain that goes all the way down into your heel, and, and you can't get comfortable at night. I mean, it can be a really horrendous pain syndrome that can last for years. But if you've had some sort of acute injury like that and you go, oh, I've sprained my back, now my back's really hurting. If it's not settling in a couple of weeks, you know, just with the usual heat, ice, maybe some anti-inflammatories, that kind of thing. Especially if you look in the mirror, if you notice one hip is slightly higher than the other, that often means there's been some twisting and some weakness and now you're getting a bit of sagging. And that's sometimes where... Just taking yourself off to a good chiropractor, one who's not trying to sell you a package of 20 sessions, but within one to six sessions can make you dramatically different. If they're not, then there's no point carrying on. Either it's not the right treatment for you or they're not doing it correctly. Don't get suckered into necessarily all these months and months of treatment. Whether you're doing physical therapy, chiropractic, acupuncture, Within the first six sessions, you should start to see some significant change in terms of pain relief and functionality. If you have seen almost no change after six sessions of whatever you're doing, stop. It's not going to work. You have to really align with the people who are treating you. That's really good advice. And that's why if you don't see those results, go somewhere else. One thing I wanted to mention, because it's near and dear to my heart, my dad has neuropathy, and you mentioned looking at his B12 levels. Can you dive in on that a little bit more? B12 is required for neuronal function. So you can get neuropathy without pain, and you can get neuropathy with pain. And sometimes people think they have neuropathy, but it's actually peripheral vascular disease. They've got poor blood supply in the feet. You want your doctor to look at your pulses, look at what the sensitivity is, look at basic blood panel of B12 and iron levels and a normal primary care should be able to run. There are some other things, like if you had to send the patient to a neurologist because they don't have risk factors, it's not chemotherapy-induced neuropathy and it's not that their blood sugars have been uncontrolled. Although even with people who've had control blood sugar, sometimes the neuropathy can build up. Then you can get certain types of neuropathies and what are called mononeuropathies, 
with things like hypothyroidism as well, not just things like diabetes. But you want a certain basic tests like that to be run. But there are natural things like supplementing with a good coenzyme Q10 supplement. And again, you know, naturopaths can tell you that some of the CoQ10 supplements out there are absolute rubbish, just like everything else. And you want one usually with a black pepper extract for better absorbability. But they've actually looked when they give patients alpha lipoic acid, a good high dose B complex, um, coenzyme Q10, that it can make a dramatic difference to neuropathy. There's also vibration things you can stand on. If there's a component of peripheral, that's just the vibration machines that you stand on or the therosocks, those improve blood flow to the feet and can make a difference. Uh -huh. Sometimes just topical oils, CBD, certain compounded creams. If it's just a very small area like the foot, you can get creams that have things like DMSO and amitriptyline and ketamine things like that in the oil, and they can put those on their feet, and that can help a lot. But sometimes the neuropathy is so painful and so debilitating and makes the patient so miserable, it affects this. That was the other thing I forgot to mention in terms of lifestyle. I always ask patients about sleep because sleep is just huge. Thank you for that info. I really appreciate it. I'm going to relay that information to my dad and hopefully anyone listening to this podcast who knows someone with neuropathy can share this information as well. I'm glad you mentioned sleep. I feel like that's one of the biggest foundations for optimal wellness, which I feel like we could talk about for hours. But I also love hearing patient success stories. I would love to hear a few success stories if you don't mind sharing them. There's just so, so many. You know, I, I have people who've had horrible CRPS. It's one of the most painful pains in limbs. And you do the sympathetic block and all the pain's gone and they're just smiling. They're, they're, some of them are patients where you literally can't even blow on their arm and they jerk back because it's so painful. And straight after the injection, they're able to rub their arm and put clothing on. Same with some of the headaches and runs. But one was... A nice one was just, there was a young military guy who'd had some surgery on his foot and nobody could figure out why he had this terrible pain in his foot and he couldn't run and he was about to have to be discharged from the military and get disability and it was going to cause all sorts of problems. And I had a look with the ultrasound and I thought I could see a nerve there that was caught in the scar tissue. So I did a diagnostic block with just a teeny bit of local and he was able to stand and walk and do everything really well. So then I brought him back for a radio frequency where I heated the nerve. I did heat it to a very high degree because, you know, there's not a lot of tissue in the foot. So I did what's called pulse, where I just heat slightly to 42 degrees Celsius. Yeah. But I did it in multiple areas around this nerve. And within a week, he was back running. That was incredibly satisfying for me. I've saved a lot of patients from unnecessary spine surgeries, which is also very nice. How did you save them from unnecessary spine surgeries? Because they were, they were told they needed spine surgery. Degenerative disc disease is not a disease. Everybody gets degenerated. Just patients get so wrapped up because some doctor says, oh, your MRI shows degenerated disc. And then they see themselves as cripples in their minds and they don't realize that it really means nothing. 70, 80% of what's on MRI and CT 
in the spine. If you don't correlate with a physical exam in the patient, it's kind of useless. It doesn't mean everyone has bulging discs and different things. You've really got to listen to the patient. We discussed the concept of referred pain. So a lot of spine pain is coming from weakness in, say, the gluteal muscles or very tight hamstrings would be an example, right? Or a missed sacroiliac problem from a car accident a long time ago, some other injury. And everyone's fixated on the disc and the bulging disc and they have epidurals and do all these things. And because they're injecting local, of course, you're injecting local anesthetic around spinal nerves. Of course, your pain's going to go away. But is that the actual source of the pain? Between either sending patients to certain people like Pilates or the right physical therapist or using injections in a diagnostic manner to figure out what is the pain generating. Sometimes there's several. It's not just one thing. And the myofascial aspect is nearly always there, whether it's a disc or a facet or a nerve problem in the spine, your muscles and your fascia are going to react and you're going to get imbalances, which then have, or you're going to walk funny or limp. That then affects your hip. That then may affect something else. And then you start generating a whole lot of other problems. And then, of course, in your mind, you become more and more anxious and distressed. And that will lower your pain threshold. So the pain almost becomes worse as, because you are not calm. Through those different modalities that I've offered in pain medicine, there have been numerous patients that have avoided spine surgery, especially fusions, which really are not good things. Yeah, there's just a ton. My next-door neighbor, actually, she had a labral tear. The labrum is the yeah. cartilage in your hip joint. was told by the surgeon, you need surgery, but you'll be on crutches for six weeks. She goes, I don't want to be on crutches for six weeks. You know, that's I'm not going to do it. I did one PRP injection and she was fine. Wow. She was better within a week and a half and she's never looked back since. Yep. That's amazing. Yep. I want to do PRP now. I don't have pain, but I just want to do it. <laughs> well, they do it as a beauty thing. They use it for hair restoration. They have the, you know, the vampire facials. I don't think they work actually that well for your skin. I think there's better things for the skin, but it is a thing. Very painful, by the way. I've seen some Medi spas that have been offering them and have been really intrigued. No, I wouldn't do it. You just said one of my favorite hot topics. There's other good things for the skin. Also, I don't know if our listeners know, but it's your birthday. So I'm so glad you're spending it with us. You look amazing. I have to know what you're doing for your skin. Thank you. You know, not much. A very good diet. Clean water. I filter my water like crazy and I drink hydrogenated water. I don't use a lot of cosmetics on my skin. I get sunlight. But a, an esthetician told me once, she was in her late 60s, and she had gorgeous skin. And I asked her what she did. She says, you know, I just use a retinoid cream once or twice a week. I use a very gentle beta-hydroxy rose toner. And then a couple of times a week, I just very gently exfoliate. And then I use the wild gooseberry oil or one of those fancy Icelandic berries. I just do it very gently on my face. I actually don't use any fancy creams because most of them are full of toxins and chemicals. And 
I just believe in common sense when it comes to health overall, whether it's health of our hair, our skin. Mother Nature has provided us with almost everything we need, and you really are what you eat. You know, that beautiful saying, let food be thy medicine and let thy medicine be thy food. Did you know we're almost at the hour mark? Thanks for listening this far. This is your gentle reminder to move your body, raise your arms overhead, and to mindfully take one deep breath and silently say one thing you're grateful for. I'm grateful you're listening to this podcast today. Dr. Lewis has some incredible insights, and we're about to get into the controversial topics of the episode today, such as what to do when diagnosed with cancer, as well as chemotherapy, biopsies, cancer medications, mammograms, and different tools for healing. As always, this doesn't replace medical advice, and this podcast is to be used for educational, informational purposes only. Earlier, Dr. Lewis spoke about ozone for injuries, which brings us to my sponsor for today's show, Simply O3 is the name of today's sponsor. They are the premier provider for home ozone generators. This company produces top of the line home ozone generators, which are built to last a lifetime. You can visit simplyo3.com to browse their vast selection of generators as well as ozonated olive oil. I know we were speaking about skin earlier and I've heard that using ozonated olive oil can reduce acne and leave you with glowing skin. Simply O3 also has all the accessories you need for your ozone generator, including a stethoscope, rectal catheters, a stem for ozonating your water, and of course, sealing bags to use around your limbs after an injury. And if you're listening to this podcast in Australia, New Zealand, the UK, Europe, or Canada, the good news is, is that they'll ship directly to you and you can still use my discount code. My full name, all capital letters, no spaces, Ashley Dealey to save 10%. That's A-S-H-L-E-Y-D-E-E-L-E-Y. Again, the company is called Simply03 and their website is simplyo3.com. All right, you guys, Dr. Lewis is going to shed some light on healing modalities later in this show. And if you haven't heard of some of the technologies and tools she mentions, you'll find links to every tool and piece of technology that she mentions within my show notes. They will all be hyperlinked. But if you're listening on iTunes or Amazon, the links won't be hyperlinked within my show notes for you. However, you can still get access to the hyperlinked show notes on my website, ashleydaily.com. Once you're on my website, you'll see the menu with the word podcast on the top. Click into that podcast section. You'll find every episode along with the hyperlinked show notes. You have to click on the picture to find the show notes. One more time, if you're not listening on Spotify and you still want access to the tools, devices, books, and resources that Dr. Lewis is going to mention, you have to go to my website to find those links. All right, you guys, thanks for listening to this interlude. Let's get back to it. Earlier, I had mentioned some modalities that people could 
take advantage of. And you had answered that we can't lump pain together, just like cancer. You've been diagnosed with breast cancer twice now. The first time was stage two, and now it's stage four. So I would love to hear your thoughts on chemotherapy, radiation, tamoxifen, and also just to say you look absolutely wonderful. Thank you. I've got a little bit of oxygen going now. Cancer cells hate being heated up. They don't like high oxygen. So that's why hyperbaric is usually used in a lot of the top cancer integrative oncology places. But thank you very much. The mind-body is so important in everything. In terms of my approach to cancer has always been, I'm a cancer thriver. I don't use the word survivor because it still brings in connotations of death. And I believe in visualizing oneself as being healed and healing. And the thriving definitely comes into that. And I think also the whole survivor thing, people love, and, and it's become part of the lexicon, obviously. People love to use the word, I'm battling my cancer. And I always say, don't use that word. You're inducing stress in yourself. God is battling your cancer. Your family and friends are battling for you sometimes on your behalf as an advocacy thing in, in, in the field when they're taking you to doctor's appointment, your immune system and your body are, are, are doing their own battle. But don't say to yourself in your mind, you're battling. You have to say to yourself, I am healing. I'm going to find a path and stay very calm. When people hear the C word, they really freak out. And I was one of them. <laughs> you have to slow down and take a deep breath and do your research because many of the mistakes come about because people are rushed into things and your cancer has been developing for years. It very seldom just arises, just all of a sudden. It's been there for a long time. So you have to think of your body as the terrain with the, the soil and the water and the microbes and the fertilizer you use and the sunlight. So what you're trying to do is fix the terrain. I like the way of thinking of myself as a gardener. <laughs> and thinking of me nurturing my body and just regrowing a beautiful garden. I really appreciate you sharing your story and your outlook and that you have such an upbeat attitude about it. Many times the first line of treatment is chemotherapy, and I've done quite a bit of research on cancer, and I would love to hear your thoughts on chemotherapy. Like with everything, I'm not black and white. For instance, some of the blood cancers respond extremely well to chemotherapy. You know, you've seen it with especially some of the kids and things, and they grow up to be adults, and they're just fine. I also think there's a place for especially targeted chemotherapy and targeted radiation, where you're not blasting the entire body. It's, it's directed at a certain area, and... When I talk about targeted chemo, I'll give the example of a very dear friend of mine who unfortunately passed away recently. But when he was first diagnosed with lung cancer, his sister-in-law and brother managed to persuade him to not just listen to his local hospital doctors. They wanted to just railroad him straight into chemotherapy when that first CT scan and x-ray came up with all the lung cancer. Thank goodness they did. 
because they got him to a more advanced cancer center who did some very specific genetic testing and found that he had a particular mutation. And there's actually a pill that you can take targeted at that mutation. And he did extremely well for almost a year until he kind of became tolerant to it. So there are many advances in, in both the integrative world and in the allopathic medicine world. And one has to keep an open mind. However, if you look at the fact that we've had all these, you know, grants for the cure for cancer, let's run for the cure for cancer. Where does that money all go? It hasn't changed hardly anything. And in fact, cancer deaths are accelerating. And that's because of all of the variables that contribute to cancer that have nothing to do with genetics. It's the toxic world we live in. So why has nothing much changed in 50 years? And why are we commonly using chemotherapeutic agents, nine of the most common chemo drugs, are class 1A carcinogens in the WHO carcinogen classification? What class 1A means? It means they cause cancer. So how does giving, lasting your body with something that is known to cause cancer, to treat your cancer, does that make sense? Doesn't make sense to me. So... That was part of my gestalt on the whole chemotherapy thing. And I vowed from the beginning I would never do it. But like I said, there's some of my friends that I've met who have been going, who've had bad cancers. Sometimes at a certain point, they had to blast themselves or something because it was a crisis of some sort. So again, there's, there's little exceptions. But I would never, ever let a doctor say, you must do X, Y, Z at the very minimum go and get two or maybe three opinions and get them from other cancer centers. And if you can, find an integrative oncology center. You know, Thomas Lodi has an amazing place called Oasis of Healing in Mesa, Arizona. Paul Anderson does great work. Schallenberger in Nevada does great work. There's a lot of these doctors around. And get their take on things. Part of why I think I landed up with stage two cancer is Yes, I had a fairly large mass, and I actually think I caused it with my cell phone because I used to tuck my cell phone under my bra strap. How stupid is that, right? Because I would be wearing dresses and things, and I, I didn't have a pocket to put it into, so I would just tuck it in there. How stupid. Because we know the dangers of EMF, and it's been underpaid. Definitely, cell phones do cause cancer. They've got studies of men, if you take pictures of bone density, they've always got the cell phone in the front of their pants. The bone loses density. You know, EMF radiation is a carcinogen too. In terms of getting back to your question, because I talk a lot, so I don't like tamoxifen. It says right there on the package insert, it causes uterine cancer and they have to monitor you for it. So I'm like, there's got to be other ways. I'm not doing this. And so what I allowed them to do because they frightened me. My, my nodule was encapsulated. It hadn't, I don't think it had gone anywhere. But they made me afraid and they said, you have to have a biopsy. Even though both the mammogram and the ultrasound showed pretty much that it was cancer. It was very unlikely to be anything benign. And it was very hard. A one centimeter squared tumor nodule contains a billion cancer cells. The minute you pierce that with a needle, you are releasing cancer cells along the track. And I think that's where some of the migration went 
to some lymph nodes in my arm because from the time of that biopsy to when I got the surgery was several weeks. And that's how I landed up being stage two. And they were like, oh, you must do chemo and radiation and tamoxifen. And I refused it all. And I was fine for eight years. If I'd been more vigilant and had the knowledge I have now, I would have been doing a lot of stuff and I probably would still be totally cancer free. But the idea of doing the chemo in the hospital, the nurses who were taking care of me, some of them had breast cancer. And it was five, eight years later, their brains had still not recovered from the damage of the chemo. And that was another reason for me. I'm like, my job involves a lot of thinking. I cannot afford to not be able to remember things and think clearly. It's going to be dangerous for my patients. It's going to be dangerous for me. And it's going to impact my ability to work. I'm not going to do it. That was some of the thinking that went into all of that. And obviously radiation is carcinogenic. And they always say to you, oh, we can't guarantee it's not going to damage your skin. Well, I've treated as a chronic pain specialist a lot of women with permanent pain and horrendous scarring from the radiation. And again, that is irreversible. And I just don't see how the whole cut, poison, burn thing has really benefited most breast cancer patients long-term. I appreciate you sharing that story because I can't imagine what it would feel like when they scare you and when they tell you, you must do this. I had a dentist on my show recently who said, we don't have to do anything. When a doctor says, you must get a root canal, get a second opinion. Do you really have to? So would you then recommend waiting until surgery to get a biopsy? I would because you don't need a biopsy even at surgery. They can do kind of like a biopsy just preoperatively and send it off and get a result within 20 minutes if they really think there's a chance it's benign. Again, the surgeons don't want to go in and have a signed so many hour block for the surgery and then they land up going in and uh, removing something benign, but that, that's very rare. Or if you're going to get the biopsy, you know, get it the day before, two days before. But in general, I feel it's totally unnecessary and they're going to send the specimen off to pathology anyway. So then they get paid twice, right? It's just wrong. Before you even run into surgery, once you have a diagnosis, just on, I mean, on the ultrasound alone, there are parameters that make it look like it's cancer as opposed to just something benign. There's usually many markers, and obviously it's different for different cancers. But, you know, in the breast cancer thing, why is cryoablation not offered more frequently? Because that is not going to spread the cancer. It saves you mutilating surgery, and it, it, it freezes everything, and then your body absorbs it and takes care of it. And then you get on, then you have the time to, to really sit and stop yes. doing your research. And actually, the results are often far better because you're not putting your body under the stress of surgery either. I want to dive into that a little bit more. So I know the cryotherapy where you go in to one of those chambers, then you come out 60 seconds later. But I think what I want to dive into, <laughs> is it called cryoablation, where you can actually freeze the tumor? Yes. What I'm referring to is the cryoablation. For cancer, don't do cryotherapy because most cancer patients 
are actually hypothermic. They're actually colder. You want to heat your body up if you have cancer by using things like near-infrared saunas or infrared lamps in the area of your cancer. You don't want to make yourself cold. But what you're referring to is the cryo ablation, correct? Where they go in typically with some sort of visualization with a special needle that is attached to almost like a dry ice machine. And we use it in pain. There's a device called Ayurveda, same thing, where you can go to a peripheral nerve and you can freeze it. And that can give patients relief for several months. And then the ice freezes the tumor. And there's only a few surgeons that do it. Hopefully they're more now than when I was looking for them in 2016. But if one can do that and you have a small enough tumor, it's absolutely an option. I know one of the interventional radiologists, the Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale was offering that. And what's very interesting is there is a paper on it. I believe he wrote it. It's something called the abscopal effect, where when you may have some satellite metastases, but you have one main big primary tumor, by cryoblating that main tumor, and it probably has to do with you destroying the cancer stem cells, which is what you want to do. It's the reason chemotherapy often... Patients go, well, I've seen it work, and my tumors shrank. Well, what it did, the chemo, because it destroys fast-growing cells, it destroyed all the cells on the outside. But the cancer stem cells in the very center, those are much more refractory to chemo and radiation. So they are left intact. And now you've exposed them and often caused damage to the whole body and changed, impacted the terrain even more. So now they get to migrate and go everywhere as before they were a little more encapsulated. So you get this honeymoon period where your tumor has shrunk, but what you've actually done is now set yourself up for the cancer to come back, roaring back, and worse than before. And you see that all the time with chemotherapy and radiation. Or they get different cancers because their immune system has been knocked out. So if I had to do it over again, I would not have allowed the biopsy and I would have gone into cryosurgery instead of going and having the surgery that I did. And the way I feel about mammograms, masses of radiation, mammograms saying people must screen every year. They always do the mammograms, oh, well, now you need an ultrasound. So why don't you do the ultrasound in the beginning? I can understand if a woman has very large breasts, but again, there are things like thermography, which are actually very accurate. The naturopaths have used for years, which show areas of increased temperature in the breast. And it's actually very accurate. So if you find that area, then send for ultrasound. They're not taking men and squashing their testicles in this awful nasher and then going, okay, well, you know, something looks suspicious. Let's send you for the ultrasound. So why are they doing it to women? Because the pressure of those mammograms as well can actually disperse cancer cells in the breast. And as I say, it's a lot of radiation and it's not particularly specific. This is one of my favorite controversial topics that I could talk about till the cows come home. So something that I learned doing a bit of research too, and maybe you can share some light on this, but the Susan B. Coleman Foundation I don't know if a lot of people know that Susan has quite a financial interest in 
mammogram machines. Mammogram machines. What what do you know about that? I know exactly what you know, that she actually has major investments in mammogram machines, which is why she pushed to have them put all around the country and and have mammograms made as part of essential screening for women. And all of this Susan B. Komen for the Cure runs, as I said, I don't know where that money all went, but also it was basically free advertising for her to get more and more women to go and get unnecessary mammograms, which made her investment even more valuable. It's like everything these days. When you look at, you can look at almost anything. The grant system has been absolutely the death knell for true science in this country because scientists will not do research unless they get paid. And they don't typically get paid unless it's benefiting. The grant is coming from an organization that has an agenda or it's benefiting a corporation. So it's like that one meme that says, you know, I tried to follow the science, but it kept leading me back to the money. <laughs> but it's so true. It's so true, though, and it's so sad. It's like that other meme, you know, wow, medical science has advanced so much. There's hardly a healthy person left. I was watching the Super Bowl, and it said yeah. one in two people will develop cancer in their lifetime. There's something wrong with our lifestyle, our food, our medication, our education, if one in two people are going to end up with cancer. Exactly. So what is all this research, all these animals suffering for decades and all this money that's been spent, what does it truly achieve? We're, we're no better off. In fact, you know, all of us have grandparents and great grandparents. I remember my granddad, you know, he was 88, he was still playing tennis. I hardly ever heard of anybody dying in that age group when I was a kid. You know, it's, you've really got to think about these things that, the things that Rachel Carson talked about and the environmental assaults on us from everything from GMOs to pesticides to toxins in the soil to excessive amounts of biopharmaceuticals. Most of it starts with food, cell phone radiation, the EMFs. It makes sense that of course it's going to make us sicker and cause problems. And we have not solved very much with science at all over the last few decades, precisely because of the biased funding. And you know, and it's funny because I always, I get so angry because they've beaten doctors over the head. We're responsible for everything. We caused the opioid crisis. That was bad government directors saying, you must treat pain and you will be penalized if you don't. And then the big pharma reps came around, told doctors, oh yes, it's totally safe. Narcotics are totally safe. Just like in cancer, we don't need studies. It'll work in normal people too. And then the mess ensued. Doctors, they have this stark law. You know, you just get a fast food lunch now from a drug rep, and that has to go on some sort of record somewhere. And how much money doctors get from a speaking engagement. But it's, that's just getting a, a free pen or, or a fast food lunch. That's supposed to influence our prescribing practices. So you're telling me that all these organizations and universities and other companies they get all this money, or, or like the CDC and the NIH, getting all this funding from Big Pharma. I mean, there was the bad old days where doctors were being flown to Hawaii for a week and getting free cruises. Yeah, that would influence the doctors prescribing. No doubt. Definitely. <laughs> but, you know, we're only human, right? But it just is ironic that 
we are accused of being influenced and prejudiced by very minimal financial incentives. And yet all these other organizations who are literally getting millions, if not billions, in funding from special interests, no one talks about the fact that they are completely biased. That's why I think it's so helpful to do your research. And this is why I started my podcast to have guests like you on the show to give scared people an option of different modalities that they didn't know maybe existed because they were so scared. And I remember when I first spoke to you, I said, oh, have you heard of this book called Cancer and the New Biology of Water? And then later when we spoke again, you said, you know what? When someone first gets a cancer diagnosis, it's so overwhelming because everyone wants to give you this book. They want to give you this supplement. So I wanted to apologize for throwing my two cents in, but also I want to hear your thoughts on supplement. Well, that book is a very good book, by the way. Your body is 70, 80% water. And I've become a huge fan of the bioenergetic medicine. I think it's the future of medicine. Nikolai Tesla was way ahead of the curve on that. But water is very much influenced by frequencies. And when you think certain thoughts or when you expose yourself to certain toxins or you use some of the therapies like EMF, the pulsed electromagnetic frequency, what are these? Of course, you're changing the biology of your water. And there's a fascinating study where if you take DNA from a cancer, from cancer cell line, and you put it in mice, they don't get cancer. But you take the water, the cytoplasm from mice with cancer, and then put that in mice with the heart, those mice will get cancer. So there's something in the water. So anyway, that's a good book. But to get back to your question, it's really hard to figure your way out. What I would probably say, based on my experience, yes. is as soon as possible, start looking for someone who does integrative oncology, whether they're a naturopath in your area or look for a good center that does it. Look at the things that they are offering and then start thinking about, okay, what kind of works for me? But I have all this knowledge and I still made mistakes and I still had a hard time trying to figure out. And that's why I kept looking for a good naturopath. I eventually found one who works a lot with cancer patients. And he was able to cone things down for me because at one point I was taking so many supplements. I was trying to detox because I knew I needed the, to detox and all of this. And he says, you know, I, I would say right now, for me, some of the most important ones, just specifically in breast cancer, is obviously DIM, which is diendylmethyl sulfate. It's from cruciferous vegetables like broccoli and cabbage, but it suppresses only the bad estrogen, not your entire estrogen system, which is actually a very important uh -huh. system. If you're wanting to find out good supplements, either get them through a functional medicine doctor or a naturopath who will often have a full script account or be able to come back designs for health or thorn research. These are all companies that will only typically sell to health professionals, but those health professionals can then have links for their patients. Consumerlab.com, you can get a membership. And they're an independent lab that will take, say, 20, 30 of the ginkgo biloba supplements or the B-complex or whatever and compare them for purity. Absorbability is the amount of milligrams that the company says of the product actually in there or not. Are there contaminants? 
and then they'll give certain ones a star and some they say, you know, absolutely terrible. So that's a good start if you're trying to do stuff yourself. People want to try and do stuff themselves, but you'll just spend so much money and you won't always know what dose to take, right? So with the DIM, you, you need to take usually about 300 twice a day. Same with alpha lipoic acid. I actually found a very good liposomal, which is a liquid form. If you can get stuff in liquid form, it's often better. I have a great vitamin D spray with K2. I have a type of liposomal alpha lipoic from a company called PolyMVA that people can go on their website and look. They have all kinds of guidelines on the website and a lot of data. And I think it's very good. But I've also used alpha lipoic acid in a company called Pure Encapsulation. Most of the other places that I've looked at recommend green tea extract. Very important. Yes. There's been a study recently looking at cytotoxic effects of ginger. I used to hate ginger, but now I've found a way to have it. You want the dried ginger, but you want organic. So there's a company called Simply Organic that has dried ginger root that I use and a half a teaspoon to a teaspoon a day. The way I take it is I either put it in, in my smoothie or I drink some bouillon. I like hot broth and I'll put it in that and then it's tolerable for me. Look for naturopathic clinics that could maybe offer you high dose IV vitamin C two to three times a week. That has a very good evidence base. Even in the normal academic centers, they often combine that with chemotherapy. If you feel like you're told you absolutely have to have chemotherapy, well, try and go to a place that does low-dose insulin-potentiated chemo, where what they do is they get you in and they give you insulin and drop your blood sugar to just where it's not too unsafe, but they keep your blood sugar very low and they give you a very low calorie diet that is nearly all fat and protein and then on day three or four they infuse the chemo but at a quarter of the normal dose and because the cancer cells only can metabolize sugar when they infuse the chemo it's linked to glucose it goes straight to the cancer cells that's why they only need to use the quarter dose and then you don't get the whole body effect. so there's all kinds of cool stuff like that but getting back to the supplements, those are ones that I think are incredibly important. I would also say I'm a fan of the whole food thing. And that's why one of the books that I think was so seminal and it was recommended by my naturopath, The Metabolic Approach to Cancer by Dr. Nasha Winters. And she talks about all of the 10 things that are typical contributors to cancer and how do you fix a lot of those things, especially things like inflammation with a whole food diet. And the first thing anybody can do, it's not expensive, is just to say low carb diet, less than 10 total carbs a day. That means not even too many veggies. People always go, oh, you must juice and your cancer will go away. But again, people make the mistake. Maybe they're juicing with a lot of carrots and beetroots. There's a lot of sugar in it. And if you're juicing with fruits, again, it's natural sugar. So it's not as bad for you, but you still, you don't want to do too much of that. There's certain fruits that are much better for you. Like the berries have huge antioxidant and many other compounds in berries are very good for you. And I am a fan of the juicing. I do a lot of cilantro with my juicing because cilantro is a great detox. I made my own because I hate celery and stuff. 
and I don't like kale and spinach. For breast cancer, you must avoid dairy of all kinds. Get it on. And in fact, most probiotic supplements are grown on dairy as well. My green juice is cucumber and apple, cilantro. I put a little bit of a bit of melon juice in because that seems to have some anti-cancer properties. And I just order that. It's hard to get it fresh pressed unless you're in one of the biggest cities. What Where do you do order I, uh, your melon juice from? Oh, I shouldn't say the word Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> but I imagine it's organic and comes in a glass container, right? Yes. Well, it's not in the glass container, okay. but it is organic. I'm more of a fan of smoothies because when you're stressed out or depending on what kind of cancer you have, you, you just don't want to sit down and eat big meals. And I can't eat large meals anymore. So smoothies are wonderful because I can throw everything in there and it's, an, it's kind of an all-in-one. I have liquid turmeric and then I put some aloe vera juice in there and my coconut milk. I have an essential greens powder. So that's how I get around all these greens going and looking for organic greens and constantly buying and shopping because you don't have time and they die very quickly if, you know, they don't always stay fresh that long. I have a very good supplement that has a lot of amino acids and enzymes and all kinds of goodies in it as a powder that I add to my juices. And I use Camu Camu powder because it's actually a higher source of vitamin C than most of the vitamin C supplements out there. People have to kind of figure out what their diet is. But the main thing is they want to keep total carbs under 10 grams a day. Basically, what we're talking about is a keto diet. And I had a friend of mine, the doctor said the stupidest thing to him. He says, oh, you don't want to do a keto diet because you're going to lose weight. Well, you actually want to lose weight, not if you're already skin and bone, right? But I'm, we're talking about cancer patients who are newly diagnosed, who up until then thought they were fine. You want to lose some weight because your fat stores a lot of toxins in your body and causes inflammation in your body. So losing weight when you have cancer is actually a very good thing. So if we're doing not too many carbs, no sugar, what else? I include the carbs. Because it's, remember, it's total carbs. It's not just the sugar. You just, because those carbs you take in the form of fruits and vegetables are still going to go to sugar in your body initially. What have you learned that you wish all breast cancer patients knew? Well, besides the things that we discussed, diet, researching right away. And by research, that's tricky. I mean, go to websites like uh, truth about cancer or going integrative plus or get a book like Dr. Nasha Winters or go on websites like San Aviv in Mexico or Oasis of Healing, Paracelsus Clinic in Switzerland. Look at what they're doing for cancer to give you an idea of what's out there. But I would also say don't be rushed into anything before you've got some knowledge under your belt, and if possible, you've found somebody to start guiding you, and then immediately go to a low-carb, dairy-free diet. Start taking the green tea extract, the alpha lipoic acid, and the ginger, and that's probably a good start. <laughs> I know yeah. we talked about a lot of different healing modalities today. Can you walk me through a few other healing options that maybe people haven't considered before? 
quantum biofeedback, it's, it's a non-invasive therapeutic technology. What it does is it energetically scans and harmonizes the body's stresses and imbalances. Every living thing has a resonant frequency. And the machine was actually developed by the guy who was this super genius. He was the one at the age of 17 because NASA had recruited him. He was a full professor of, I think, mathematics and physics at the age of 15. NASA recruited him at 17. He was the one who brought Apollo 13 down. He wow. did the algorithms for that. And then he went on get his MD and ND. So he developed this machine. It's a whole computer thing and it's very advanced. And it is a scientifically proven method for reducing stresses in the body, which include things like allergens, bacteria, viruses, vaccine injuries, emotional stresses, pain. You connect it to the device using wrist straps and ankle straps and there's a head strap. And so what the device is doing is measuring electrical reactions of your body. And it has a 45-minute diagnostic section. And then the other hour and a half, two hours is rebalancing everything. And you may need this several times a week for a period, depending what you're doing. It also is very helpful diagnostically. It's been absolutely accurate both times where I got a severe bacterial infection. I hadn't said anything to her once that I'd been on high-dose ivermectin for about a month. She goes, you have no parasites in your body. It's way, obviously, way more advanced and technologically complex, but that's kind of the basics. And for certain things, I think it's absolutely amazing. Another one that I have my own machine, PEMF. There's a very good evidence base for PEMS. When I was in Montana, half their practice was animals. Animals have no electrical resistance. And so they would put the machine on just 20 minutes, usually at a time, on a horse or a dog or whatever. And it was absolutely amazing. I got a few friends of mine who had various pain ailments to do it, and I proved that it works for pain. But there's more and more data in terms of its effects in cancer. And obviously, when you're treating cancer, you use it for longer, but it, it improves circulation, does all kinds of things. And again, it works on the fact that every individual cell in our body has a frequency or resonance that it needs to be at in order to function properly. When you throw that resonance off, such as the cell phones and microwaves or toxin exposures or even emotional stresses, that can trigger abnormal cellular behavior. So what you're trying to do is just rebalance your natural frequencies in your body. And that's, again, where sometimes things like just grounding, just going and walking by the ocean or being out in nature and getting your mind right. We all know how lethal stress can be and anxiety and PTSD. I have seen so many PTSD patients with all kinds of pain syndromes, including neuropathy, fibromyalgia, headaches, back pain, pelvic pain. And you reset the sympathetic nervous system and the stress system in your body goes away. It's quite remarkable. And cancer shells have been shown to have an abnormal residence that differs from normal healthy cells. Um, there was a professor in the 1930s called Dr. Harold Saxon. He was an anatomy professor at Yale University. He found that tumors have different electrical properties than normal tissue. And he would sometimes find the appearance of cancer in mice after measurable change in the organism's electromagnetic field. So this again kind of supports a metabolic theory of cancer. 
Um, it's not just abnormal genetics or epigenetic. And there's a guy called Jerry Tennant. He's a researcher in the field of electromagnetics. He's found that human cells are designed to function at about 20 millivolts, which ironically corresponds to a pH of 7.35 to 7.4, which is what our body's pH is, which is where we function best, right? Cells change their physiology as the voltage decreases, can't take in nutrients, can't eliminate waste. And then those are the cells that are at risk of becoming cancerous. So it's very interesting. And the PEMF is a very easy treatment. You can either buy your own machine or go to someone. And usually I do an hour a day, at least, if you're treating cancer. It's usually a big loop that goes around where the cancerous area is. In my case, it's, you know, my whole chest. I've spoken about the hypothermia. Hyperbaric oxygen chambers are very useful. A lot of the top integrative centers will do hyperbaric oxygen. You want to raise oxygenation at a tissue level because areas of hypoxia and low oxygen damage cells and predispose to cancer. And even the whole area around cancer is usually very hypoxic. And that's why cancer cells keep making new blood vessels to try and bring in more nutrients to the cancer, but they're stealing all the oxygen and nutrients in the meantime around the area. So raising oxygen is, is very important. I'm so glad you're sharing these different modalities and advice that people can take on that maybe they haven't heard before. And I, I also really appreciate you sharing your story and diving into all the things that you've learned. I was listening to a podcast ages ago where someone said, what would you do if you were diagnosed with cancer tomorrow? And the host said, get a hydrogen machine and I would drink hydrogenated water. So tell me what's the importance and why do you drink hydrogenated water? Hydrogenated water, yeah. Actually, most of the top naturopaths use hydrogenated water. What it does is basically reduces the impact of oxidative stress, counteracts the effect of free radicals, it supposedly improves sleep and um, relieves fatigue. And hydrogen helps because it improves oxygen uptake in your body. And that's probably the biggest reason that people would drink hydrogenated water because they improve oxygen uptake in your body. It's the same as you can ozonate water too. You're trying to improve hypoxic conditions in the body. And that is common with many diseases, but especially obviously with cancer you're dealing with a lot of hypoxia. And so anything that can improve the oxygenation of your tissues is going to improve your garden. It's just like bringing good water yes. to, yes, I to love your that. garden. Dr. Lewis, what haven't I asked you that you'd like my listeners to know? Oh, my heavens. I would say don't try and do everything yourself. Really reach out to patients Groups. You know, in my case, I went to one of the clinics in Mexico. I thought I'd done my research. I thought they were good. And actually, in retrospect, they were not good. And I should have chosen a different place. But it's hard to tell because the websites look good. So it really helps to get other perspectives. The other thing I would say also is look at food intolerances. And again, naturopaths can often do this. But if you are eating foods that your body is intolerant to, that's going to be a huge source of inflammation in your body. 
And inflammation is the one thing you want to get under control. And that's why juicing, for instance, is so important because that does help a lot of inflammation. And patients, above all else, need to get the mind-body thing right. That's another whole topic, but there are cancer personality types. And for instance, in breast cancer, a lot of the patients have a lot of sadness and a lot of anger. And if you don't clear that, that's just as much a toxin. And your brain and your subconscious and the messages you're giving to your body, same as the fear messages that the medical profession induce in a cancer patient, can make you basically almost make yourself die because you convinced you're going to. And you, you've got to you've got to get help, but that's very hard. You know, even with strong faith-based people, Christians, you know, you still need that extra help. And most people have emotional trauma and things they need yeah. to clear and forgive. And um, and it segues with some of my work with PTSD. I've discovered that PTSD is super prevalent. They're estimating 12 million people or more. But actually, there's a whole continuum of anxiety disorders. And I believe even depression is an anxiety disorder. And that's why antidepressants don't really work. <laughs> you, you've got to treat the anxiety and what triggered that. I really cannot emphasize that enough. The mind-body connection is extremely powerful. And then I would just say, like, in stage one and two, be very aggressive with diet and then certain supplements. Once you're getting into the other stages, you're probably never going to cure yourself, but you can put yourself into remission for years and years. But you absolutely have to get help when you're in that situation. It's just too overwhelming. What would you say to someone who just got a cancer diagnosis and is really scared? I would say probably read that book I mentioned, Metabolic Approach to Cancer. Go to Truth About Cancer. Go and turn to people who love you or support, but don't start running around going, I, I'm a cancer patient. I'm a, try and say, I have been given this diagnosis and I want to heal and I know there are things that can heal me and I'm going to look for people who can help me navigate that. But again, back to very much basics, watch the diet. The diet is so crucial. Um, get rid of all the processed foods and the sugars and go organic and and then just start looking at different options for yourself, both in the allopathic and the integrative world, because a lot of people combine the two. I'm not saying go one or the other. I'm saying even if you decide because you're too scared to just go chemo route, whatever, or your cancer's so aggressive, you need the surgery or the chemo, there are a lot of things that will support your body through that. They find, for instance, people tolerate chemo better if they fast for one or two days before they eat very little food and then the day of the chemo and after same thing they don't seem to get quite as much vomiting and that kind of issue because fasting induces autophagy where the body is kind of cleaning itself up and rejuvenating itself 
so it can help you again. I did have one more question about chemo. And this is because I just had a dear friend who was diagnosed yesterday with a blood cancer. And he is unsure of where to start. And I heard you mention when we started talking about chemo that it can be really beneficial for the blood cancers. So can you just dive in on any kind of advice for blood cancers? All I can say is what I said before is if he's at a smaller center, I strongly advise him to ask his doctors for a referral to a more advanced center like Mayo or MD Anderson, just to get a second opinion, to make sure that there's not certain genetic tests or treatments that have perhaps not been thought of or available in terms of the testing. And if his doctors get upset that he does that, then he needs to be extra cautious because doctors who feel threatened because a patient just wants to do their due diligence, if you're a good doctor, you should encourage your patients to do that. That's really sound advice. Thank you for weighing in on that. This is the part where I usually ask my listeners where they can find you, but you are not on social media, which I imagine is very great for your mental health. So they will just have to reach out to me and tell me how much they loved listening to you today and how helpful you've been because I'm sure they're going to want to share this information. Katrina, is there anything else you wanted to drive home today? Oh, no, I could talk to the cars. <laughs> I think I'll give it a break now. <laughs> but thank you so much for having me on. And I really do hope it's been helpful to patients. There's so much complexity. And as I say, I'm still learning. But hopefully this can help guide people a little sooner and a little easier to finding solutions for themselves um, and in individualized solutions because there really is no one size fits all. One person might just do diet, especially if they're stage one or two, and everything will disappear. They don't need anything else, right? But depending on where you're at, you may need a lot more than that. Finding someone who works in the integrative oncology field for a living a so-called expert really is incredibly important. Well, thank you so much for your time, your wisdom, your advice. I really enjoyed having you on the show today. Thank you so much. And again, happy birthday. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks, Katrina. Thank Bye. Until next time, you guys. This podcast is presented for educational and exploratory purposes only. Published content is not intended to be used for diagnosing or treating any illnesses, disease, or disorders. Those responsible for this show disclaim any responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of this information presented by myself or my guests. Please consult with your health care provider before using any products or services referenced in this podcast. This podcast may contain paid endorsements for products or services. Any third-party materials or content of any third-party site reference on this show do not necessarily reflect the opinions of standards or the policy of my guests. This podcast and my website, ashleydeely.com, represent the opinions of myself. 
The content discussed on the show should not and does not replace medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. Episodes on Welcome to Wellness may at times cover sensitive topics, including, but not limited to, depression, suicide, COVID-19, vaccines, events related to the pandemic, 5G, big pharma, nootropics, circumcision, psychedelics, hormones, the Women's Health Initiative, birth control, the use of plants medicine, abortion, geoengineering, terrorism, gender, AI, and sex drugs and rock and roll. You are advised to refrain from listening to this podcast if you are likely to be offended or adversely impacted by any of these topics. However, if these topics are of interest to you, you just may have found your tribe. The information or opinions expressed on the Welcome to Wellness show are solely the views of the individuals involved by no means represent absolute facts. Opinions expressed by the host and the guests can change at any time. The views of my guests are solely their views and the Welcome to Wellness show does not accept responsibility for them. And any action you take on the information contained within the show is strictly at your own risk. The Welcome to Wellness host, Ashley Dealey, will not be liable for any losses or damages in connection with the use of this podcast. You should take all necessary steps to ascertain the information you receive from this podcast is correct and has been verified. None of the guests or contributors on the Welcome to Wellness podcast will be responsible for your use of the information contained therein. Under no circumstances will the Welcome to Wellness show or my affiliates, partners, suppliers, licenses, or guests appearing on this show be liable for any direct or indirect or consequential damage arising from your use of or inability to access this podcast. All intellectual property rights belong to Ashley Dealey included but not limited to the copyright and any other rights in the design you are permitted to use the welcome to wellness podcast for personal use but not for commercial use without license you may not make any recordings of or otherwise copy this podcast if you breach these terms you lose the right to access the welcome to wellness podcast and you must destroy or return any copies of the recordings you have made guests on the welcome to wellness podcast may at times provide information on or read extracts from third parties copyrighted work the Welcome to Wellness podcast does not provide any medical or professional advice within these episodes. Anything said should not be taken as replacement for medical, clinical, professional advice, diagnosis, or medical intervention. If you take any action or inaction as a result from the content you consume from the Welcome to Wellness podcast, this is based solely on your decision and the Welcome to Wellness podcast and Ashley Dealey and my guests cannot be held liable for any of the consequences of such action or inaction. Thank you.